Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you've joined us this fine Sunday morning. There's nothing like spring deciding that it's fully going to sprung right when our air conditioner goes out, right? And if you are sitting here this morning thinking, man, I am hot and it's stuffy in here, we're just expecting a little over an hour. Jesus spent three days in the tomb. Chill out, all right? We're going to make it through this together, all right? We are so glad that you have joined us for worship, whether it's here in person or it's online. And we do trust that God will speak to you in the ways that you need to hear from him this morning. And I am excited, not just about uh, this Sunday. You know, one of the hardest things, and I mentioned this to come up with, is what we're going to talk about. And uh, this week we kind of like had a flood of, of thoughts and ideas. And so we've got this Sunday where we're going to talk about Thomas. And then next Sunday, I am so excited as we come together and talk about Mothers of Thunder for Mother's Day. And there's going to be a reason for that, trust me. There, it actually goes with the message, and spoiler alert, it's the sons of Zebedee, right? They did have a mother, and so if he was Mr. Thunder, then she was Mrs. Thunder. And so we're going to talk about that. We're excited about that. And then we've got grad recognition, another Sunday. And then we're into Romans. And that is going to be a long road, uh, but we, we have... Uh, Several, several weeks, 16 weeks actually, going through the book of Romans. Really excited to look at that. The title of that series is going to be, I Pledge Allegiance, Learning to Be a Citizen in the Kingdom of God. And so we are pumped about all that God has laid out in front of us, all that is before us. And we hope that you'll join us, not just today, but in the weeks to come as God continues to lead. As we turn our attention now to the Word of God, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. I thank you for the great love with which you've loved us, Lord, and I do thank you for the empty tomb, which we celebrated a few weeks ago, Lord, but we're still celebrating today because the tomb is still empty. And you are still God, you still are on your throne, you are still all-powerful, and you are still guiding and working and moving in our lives. And so, God, we thank you for that. Lord, as we come now to your word and we consider Thomas and the twins within, Lord, we pray that you'd speak to us clearly, and Lord, that you would calm our doubts and move us into deeper relationships of devotion as we follow you. Speak to us now, in Jesus' name, amen, <clears throat> amen. In the 2000, year 2000, there was a movie that came out, a hit movie, I loved it, and that movie was National Treasure, Book of Secrets. And in the movie, there is a, an interaction that takes place fairly early on where uh, an academic is, is standing on the, uh, on the stage. They're talking about what's going on, and, and everything goes, goes to, to dirt and, and trash. And so um, the, one character is talking to another and talking about why it's so important for him to defend his family name. And he says, have you ever heard the phrase, your name is mud? And then he tells this really interesting story about how the, the modern version of that phrase kind of came into vogue. The, the truth is the phrase is actually a very old phrase that goes back to Roman times, but it, it did come into vogue in America during the Civil War. And as the story goes, it all revolves around a man named Dr. Samuel Mudd. Dr. Samuel Mudd, spelled with two Ds, Samuel Mudd, M-U-D-D. Samuel Mudd was a doctor in Maryland right around the time of the Civil War, throughout the Civil War and into the end of the Civil War. And he was accused, Dr. Mudd was accused, of being a co-conspirator with John Wilkes Booth to assassinate 
Abraham Lincoln. Well, how, how did he get that title? What happened that made him a co-conspirator and, and, and conspirator and ultimately caused him to be convicted of being a conspiracy to convi- commit murder? Well, as, as we all know, when John Wilkes Booth jumped off of the balcony to escape and, and, and to make his way to the south, he broke his leg. He broke his leg on impact, and he made his way not too far away to Dr. Mudd's office where he sought medical attention. And of course, Dr. Mudd, being a good doctor, treated, treated John Wilkes Booth and, and took care of his leg, which would have been all good and fine, but Dr. Mudd, knowing what John Wilkes Booth had just done, failed to report that he had operated on John Wilkes Booth for a full 24 hours after he had done the surgery. Ergo, a trial Ultimately comes, they arrest him, they try him, they convict him of murder, and he died in prison, a convicted co-conspirator in the murder of President Abraham Lincoln. Many historians, however, argue that the evidence against Dr. Mudd is, quote, ambiguous and circumstantial, and that while Dr. Mudd did operate on Booth that night and did fail to report his presence, that he was innocent of any murderous intent. But the damage was done. His name forevermore would be Mud. And our names, when people are, are talking in, disparage, in a disparaging way about us, they would say that your name is Mud. But it's unfortunate, isn't it? Because, again, as I just read and as I just noted, the, the evidence was ambiguous and circumstantial. And that there was no murderous intent. And as far as, as we keep collecting evidence, there is no evidence that he actually uh, engaged in the conspiracy to commit murder. He didn't have an active role. He just did what doctors do and cared for a patient that ended up on his dining room table. But forevermore, his name will be associated with the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. And forevermore... Whenever anyone does anything wrong or messes up in their life, their name will be mud. His name is con- con- connected with, with a disparaging thing. And, and I, I, I tell that story for this reason. I wonder, I wonder if we haven't done the same thing to poor Thomas. I mean, the fact is, I, I just said that name, Thomas, and in your mind, all of you were thinking, whoa, 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 that's doubting Thomas, thank you very much. When's the last time that you heard poor Thomas's name where doubting wasn't the prefix that went before it? That's what we know him as now. Is it fair, though? Turn with me in your Bible this morning as we start, and let's look at John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, where Mr. Thomas earns his name. John 20, 24 through 29. And it tells us this, John 20, 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my fingers where, where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
A week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then Thomas said, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See, see my hands? Reach out your hand and, and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I want to consider poor Thomas this morning and see what's really going on in his life. And I want to submit to you as we begin that you and I are not that different from Thomas. That we all have dueling twins within. Dueling twins within. We, we see it all, all the time, like uh, illustrated in cartoons, right? We, we see it all the time in cartoons, and, and something bad will happen, particularly in the Looney Tunes, and, and something would be going on, and Bugs Bunny would be having to make a decision, and then you would have two little things that would appear on his shoulders, one that was the good and had the angelic halo, and the other that had the, the devil horns, and, and they would be trying to convince him to go one way or the other. And they, they would be trying to, to walk him down one path, or they're trying to influence his decision one way or another. And, and I would argue that, that this morning I'm going I'm to talk about two different spirits that I think we see in Thomas that I think are in work, at work in us. But, but there are lots of different character qualities that are fighting to get out. It's not, just, it's not just twins that are within us. It is legion, right? The character qualities that are battling against one another, both for the good and for the evil inside of us. That's not the devil. That's you, right? I just want to be clear about that. The devil never made you do it. You chose to do it, according to James. And those spirits, that, that spirit of God that is pushing and trying to move us in, down the path towards the devotion and, and the other doubts and, and, and the issues and our own sinfulness that's pulling us back, those things are always at work within us. And we see that in the life of Thomas. Now, Thomas, I, I would say, is the second most disparaged disciple of Jesus. The names of two disciples live in infamy. And they are, say it, Judas. The only one that, that is more disparaged than Thomas is Judas. Judas, of course, wins the trophy for worst disciple ever. Right? Anyone want to debate that with me this morning? Because I will happily hand you a microphone. Didn't think so, right? Worst disciple ever. He betrayed Jesus. He, it, it's not just figuratively. Like we talk about that, right? We talk about when someone is going to, to do something wrong or bad to a friend of theirs, we, we talk about selling them out, right? Usually it is, is it, we do that we sell someone out as a means of self-preservation. Judas was not selling Jesus out out of self-preservation. He sold Jesus out for financial gain. Literally collected the cash to turn Jesus over to them. And he did so with the ultimate sign of affection and intimacy, a kiss. His name has become outright synonymous with betrayal. When we talk about Judas, the disciple of Jesus, even early on, long before he has earned the name, we're like, well, he's the disciple that betrayed Jesus. 
I want to put a pin in that thought because we're gonna, that's going to be important here in a minute. Thomas, though, comes in a distant, if not noteworthy, second. He is the poster child for doubt. I mean, we, we even say it to people when they are acting out of doubt rather than faith. We say, oh, stop being a doubting Thomas. Right? That, it's 2,000 years later, and this one moment that happens in John 20 is all that we can remember about the dude. Doubting Thomas. We can't even say the one without the other without feeling awkward. Extra biblical sources, however, indicate that our boy Thomas was actually a double loser. Because his actual given name was, wait for it, Judas Thomas. His name was Judas Thomas. Didn't matter what home he went by, there was no win for him in that time. Now, why did he go by Thomas? Because if you look at the list of disciples of Jesus, there are in fact not one, not two, but three Judases. There is Judas Iscariot, the one that we know of. There is Judas, who was also called Thaddeus. And there was Judas Thomas. I mean, it would have been really confusing. I mean, the Bible might have been a little more interesting if we walked around. Judas 1, Judas 2, Judas 3, right? Like, all kinds of Judas. And the reason for that is Judas was an incredibly popular name at the time. It was actually the most popular name in the first century for a Hebrew young man. Judas was the name. But again, Thomas goes by Thomas, and the connection of his name to doubt is unfortunate, and I, I want us to consider this morning if it might not also be unfair. I mean, this is how much he's defined by us. I once played a role in a, a drama for our choir or band. I can't remember which one it was in high school where we toured, and I played Thomas in a drama, and I had Eight different manifestations or instances where I had a line, and every line was the same. Throughout the entire play, all I ever said was, I doubt it. That, that's it. I doubt it. I doubt it. That was it. Six times in a two-and-a-half-minute play, I said, I doubt it, because I was doubting Thomas. Is it fair? Now, we see that he has two names here, that his name is Thomas and also Didymus. His two names both mean twin. Both names mean twin. As is often the case in first century culture, he had both an Aramaic or Hebrew and a Greek name. We see it, we see it regularly in the Bible, right? Paul's name, Saul's name was not changed to Paul later. It was the Hebrew and the Greek. Christ and Messiah, same, same title. Just one is Greek and one is Hebrew. Well, it's common. Thomas is Aramaic or Hebrew, and Didymus is Greek. And Thomas, while Judas was an incredibly common name, Thomas was not. There are, in fact, very few instances where they can reference and say that someone was named or called Thomas. It is believed that Thomas was actually a nickname that he was given. Now, how did he get this nickname? One commentator speculates that he was given the name Thomas to commemorate the double portion of doubt he had in comparison to the other disciples. How terrible would that be? Like it's not just doubting Thomas, but it's doubting doubter. 
right? Doubting doubter doubter, right? Like it's triple the doubt. Like they're doubling down on the fact that this man is known for his doubt. That seems a little bit harsh to me and unlikely. Another option is that he was actually a twin. While we never actually met Thomas, it seems like the most likely option and what scholars tend to go with. As I consider Thomas, though, I do see a man who is dealing with a duality inside of him. And not just from this text, but from all of the texts in the Gospel of John that deal with Thomas. If we are going to deal with Thomas and we are going to give him a a proper name and we are going to see him through a proper lens, we need to consider all of who Thomas was and all of who Thomas did and how it might apply to our lives. Because which of us in this room wants to be remembered by our one moment of, of catastrophic doubt? Which of us in this room wants to be remembered by our greatest failure in life? Which of us wants to be remembered by a moment of weakness rather than moments of strength? None of us. We've got to understand, though, as we look at Thomas, we're going to see this in his life, that devotion and doubt are constantly pushing and pulling on our hearts. Devotion and doubt are constantly pushing and pulling on our hearts. And we actually see both in the life of Thomas in the Gospel of John. Devotion is the true spirit of discipleship, is it not? It is the hallmark of a disciple. Following and going as Jesus leads. And did you know that before Thomas demonstrated unspeakable doubt, that he he demonstrated amazing devotion and courage. Turn with me in your Bibles, right quick, to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. It says, starting in verse 1, Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. We know this story, right? Another resurrection story. A man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. When Jesus said this, heard this, he said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for the glory of God, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now, just brief stop, that's got to be acknowledged. Because does that not say, we don't have time to go too far down on that, but I always, like, feel the need to stop. Jesus loved him, and so Jesus hung out for two more days. Jesus and I, like, Jesus is not on your timetable, folks. Like, we may be in the most catastrophic situation of our life, but Jesus will show up at the perfect time for God's glory and for our good. Moving on. Jesus waits two more days and then said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going to go back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. 
his disciples replied, Lord, if he's asleep, he will get better. And Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples, he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I am glad I was not there. So that you may believe, but let us go to him. All right, here we are, verse 16, pay attention. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we might die with him. This is a totally different Thomas, isn't it? Like here we are, this first example, same Thomas. Like you, they, it, it disambiguates. It is Thomas, who is also called Didymus, same guy. And, and Jesus says, hey, we're going back to this place where they just tried to kill me not too long ago. And the disciples are like, we can't go there. Those people want to beat you to death with rocks. And Jesus is like, nah, we're okay. And Thomas is like, we might as well go die with him. Here we go. Come on, boys. Thomas was willing to die with Jesus in Jerusalem and encourage the other disciples to follow and do the same. Thomas knew the danger that lie ahead, just as all of the disciples did. They'd faced it before. And you know what? The fact is that Thomas was not wrong. Jesus ultimately would be put to death. He would be murdered on this trip. But not by stoning. It was even worse by crucifixion. But note the devotion of Thomas. Thomas, knowing that the risk is there, is the only one of the, the 12 disciples that's willing to say, hey, hey, if this is where he goes, this is where we goes. Onward. Let's go die with him. This is what's about to happen. Then come on, I'm here for it. Discipleship, at its most basic level, is a willingness to follow Jesus wherever he leads, no matter the cost. Discipleship, at its most basic level, is a willingness to follow Jesus wherever he leads, no matter the cost. Now, in, in modern culture, in the modern church, we've taken the word discipleship and we've made it something else. Discipleship is not Christian education. Discipleship is not Bible classes. Discipleship is not, not rote church attendance. Discipleship is following Jesus in the everyday and ordinary of our lives and standing firm in our understanding of who he was and what he did regardless of how much it hurts, how much it might, might cost us, or what good it brings into my life at the moment. Discipleship is not, is not a badge of honor that we put on our Christian you know, merit badge slings that we wear. And that's what we treat it as. It's, about, it's information that we upload or, or into our head. It, it, it's, it's hoops that we jump through. That's not what it is. Discipleship is a life dedicated to Jesus. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would follow after me, let him deny himself daily. Take up his cross and follow me. We see that in several of the Gospels. And, and that's great. When in our modern day, we take that as being figuratively, which it, it's the only way we can take it. That they're, because no one's getting crucified these days. But understand that, that the disciples may have taken that figuratively and, and been unsure what it meant at the time. You can no longer take what Jesus says as figuratively after he actually takes up a cross, carries it up on Mount Calvary, and dies. 
It is no longer figurative. You know what that means when Jesus says that? That if anyone would be my disciple, they must take up their cross daily and follow me. Deny themselves. He's not talking about putting a silver cross around your neck. He's talking about living and dying on the truth of his word, what he did, and following his lead in life. It is a follow to the death proposition. And Thomas was ready to go. I don't know that I'd have been with Thomas on this one. I mean, just think about it. Even Peter doesn't have the courage to say, hey, let's go die with him. Like, you got to wonder where Peter was with that. Ah, Thomas. <laughs> you know? As a matter of fact, when we see Peter in, in the same instance, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die on a cross. And what is it that Peter says in that moment? Jesus, 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 Jesus. You can't talk like that. That's bad marketing. You're not going to sell any books about Jesus if this is what you tell people are going to do. Like, people aren't going to give to your cause, Jesus, if you're talking all this crazy nonsense about going and dying. Yeah, let's soften it a little bit. What does, Jesus say to Satan? what does Jesus say to Peter? Hey, Satan, get back in line. Stop acting adversarial to me. Here we have Thomas, though, saying, hey, let's go die with him. Turn with me over a couple more pages to John chapter 14, because we see Thomas again. John 14, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I'm going. Thomas said to him, uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Notice who's the one that, that causes Jesus to break it open and lay it all out for them. That, hey, you, you say you don't know the way. And you said earlier, Tom, Thomas says, hey, let's go, let's go follow him. Let's go die with him. And Jesus now reveals that Thomas is exactly right. When Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, he's saying, this is it. Like it is through me, it is through faith in me, but it is also by living like me. You are going to mold yourself into my image. I am it. And Thomas isn't demonstrating doubt in this moment. He's, he's seeking greater clarity. He's, we know that he's willing to go with Jesus to the death, right? We just saw that. And Thomas is like, look, I'm, I'm good with going there. Just tell me where we're going. Just, just tell me where I need to go, and I'm, I'm in. Thomas was willing to go wherever Jesus led, but he asked for, for directions how to get there. His doubts or uncertainty at this point are driving him to seek clarification so he can continue to follow Jesus. Doubt was driving him deeper to devotion. Now, make no mistake, though. Devotion will be tested when things get difficult. Even when we know it's coming, Thomas knew full well it was coming. He still struggled. The struggle is real, even when it's sure and certain. We need to live in devotion to the Lord. In the shadow of the struggle and suffering, 
However, the spirit of doubt will rise up within us. Now, if we go back to our passage for this morning, John 20, we note that Thomas was the lone ranger not present at the first appearing of the resurrected Christ. Why? Why is Thomas the only one that is not there? William Barclay quotes George V, who had a rule of life. George V says this, If I have to suffer, may it be like a well-bred animal, and let me go and suffer alone. If I have to suffer, let me be like a well-bred animal, and let me go and suffer alone. It, It is highly probable and likely that Thomas, in his sorrow and suffering, had separated himself from the rest of the disciples. And he chose to face the darkness alone. It really makes sense. If we think about Thomas being this inquisitive, questioning one that constantly has things going on in his mind that other disciples aren't talking about, it makes sense that Thomas would maybe need some relational space, some personal space to deal with his thoughts and his feelings. And and it makes sense because is this not what we do? When, when we're hurt and crying, most of us don't stand there and just let people watch us weep. Even when it's close family, what do we do when we're crying? We bow our head. We hide our face. When people have hurt us, do, do we stand in and wait for it? No, we, we pull away. When we're scared, when, when, we're, when we're frightened, when we're hurting, we hide. We seclude, we separate ourselves from others. It's a common, natural, defensive response to withdraw and isolate from others in times of great hurt and heartache. We want to hide our weakness, which, ironically, only serves to highlight it and give it a foothold. In Genesis 2, 18, the Lord, the one time in the, in the creative narr- creation narrative, the Lord says, This is not good. You know, God didn't say that because God had made a mistake. It wasn't that God had gone through creation and and gets through the end of of creating Adam and all of his creation. Adam, the the crowning achievement of creation, humanity. It's not that God looked at Adam, this being that he's made, and was like, oh my gosh, how did I forget that? (laughs) Silly me. If my head wasn't tied on, I would forget it. It's not that God just suddenly, that that his his butter slipped off his bread and the Lord forgot what he was doing. You know why God says that in that passage? It's not for his good or benefit, it's for us. The Lord says to us this morning, it is not good for you to be alone. Holistically, that's not saying that you should be married. What God is communicating is that we we are by nature relational beings. That life is designed to be lived together. Life is designed to be lived in community, with connection. We need each other. And if my life and ministry has taught me anything, it is that healing is best cultivated in the context of loving community. Healing is best cultivated in the context of loving community. It's when we're willing to humble ourselves and come to one another 
to open ourselves up, to, to, to willingly let others bear the burdens with us, to willingly allow others to step in and to assist us, to willingly let others offer us a hand up when we need it. We don't, though. We, we want to, we and, and it is, it is a, a problem all over the world, but it is an extremely American thing to be so hyper-individualistic. We feel like to show any weakness to show any need for anyone else will we'll, we'll lay us bare and will put us at risk. But we need each other. I, I can't tell you how many times, and Gene will tell you as well, how many times people call the office in desperate need of help. And as they are telling us they're desperate in need of help, they tell us that they don't want our help. <laughs> they don't want to ask for our help, but they know they need it. I can't tell you how many people I talk to who I pray with who are, are crying, who are having terrible issues in their life, and I ask, if there's anything I, we can do for you, please let us know. Like, no, 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 I'm fine. Well, obviously you're not fine or you wouldn't be sitting in my office. And I don't say that to be funny, and I don't, I don't, I'm not just pointing this, this, the fingers out. I will tell you, in, 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 there are seasons where I am taking hits as a pastor where I withdraw from you all. Where when I see you walking in from the parking lot, I quickly exit out the back of my office because I just can't handle it. And it might not even be that you're coming in to do anything mean. I just cannot handle being in your presence at the moment. We do it to our kids, right? Like how many of you mothers or fathers have ever hid in the bathroom? Don't lie to me. You've all done it. You see the kid coming around one way and you make your way up the stairs. I'm just being honest about it. We, we do it, don't we? we? We separate, we seclude as if we're going to build ourselves up or pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, which is physically impossible, might I add. We, we, and we pull off to the side as if we're going to fix ourselves when all the time what we need is to lean into others and to allow them to prop us up and to help us forward. We need each other. And as a result of Thomas's absence, he misses out on what he needs the most and experience with the risen and living Christ. Confirmation of Christ's word to his followers. Verse 25, we see that Thomas arrives and the disciples tell him that they'd seen the Lord. Again, I told you a couple weeks ago that a testimony was considered airtight when confirmed by at least two witnesses. Thomas has 13 plus witnesses who were all saying the same thing and Thomas refuses to believe. Not only does Thomas refuse to believe, he doubles down on his doubt. Hey, unless, unless I can touch the holes myself, which seems incredibly gross to me, I'm not going to believe, Thomas says. His doubts at this point, however, aren't an outright denial. His doubts serve as an invitation for further evidence. Do you see that in the text? Thomas doesn't say, I don't believe and I won't believe. Thomas says, if I am going to believe, I need further evidence. And there's value to seeking out and being open and honest about the uncertainty and doubt in our lives. So long as the doubt opens up avenues for God to reveal himself to us rather than slamming the doors shut in his face and locking him out. We can't say, Christ, if you'll prove yourself to me, I'll believe. And then say, but you have to prove yourself in this narrow way. 
We can't close the doors and then, and then complain that Christ doesn't show up. But here's the good news. Even if we do slam the doors on Christ's face, we can't stop him. Christ in his grace and compassion continues to pursue us and no closed door can keep him out. Just as the heavy stone couldn't keep him in, Christ cannot be contained. And in verse 26, we see that Jesus meets the disciples where they are in spite of their efforts to keep everyone out. And Christ offers what they need the most. He offers them peace. He says, peace be with you. Which also is incredibly funny that Christ appears out of no one and is like, hello, peace be with you. They're locked in a way, in a room. Why are they locked in that room? Because they have no peace. They're terrified. Their, their fear is that what Thomas has called them to is actually what they're moving towards. That Christ has been crucified, and even though that he was risen from the grave, they were probably next. And you know what? They were right. But they're living in fear. They are being driven by their fear. They have no peace. And so Jesus offers them the deep and abiding peace, the shalom of God. Christ offers them peace. And he offers them proof of his promise through his presence. Thomas asked. Thomas received. And Jesus completely destroyed all of his doubts. I wonder at times if we don't see the reality of the risen Christ in our lives because we haven't asked for it. And if we have asked for it, are we open to seeing it when it comes? Thomas sees, and Jesus warns Thomas and us not to let doubt drive out belief. Don't let doubt drive you to disbelief. I've said this before. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. Apathy is. When we refuse to walk, when we refuse to follow Christ, doubt is just uncertainty. It is, it is, it is an opportunity for Christ to make us more certain if we're willing to walk and follow. And Christ continues to provide us with his peace and evidence of his continued presence and work through the power and presence of his Holy Spirit in our lives. Brothers and sisters, see what God is doing and believe. Don't be caught, so caught up in the darkness that you fail to see the light that's right in front of your face. We see these twin spirits of devotion and doubt at work in the life of Thomas and in our own lives. And I wanted this next point to be that one decision won't or shouldn't define you. But that's wrong. One decision can and will define you. One decision can and will define you, and it should. Moments of devotion, they help build us up. Moments of doubt will drive us one way or another. But those aren't the things that define us. What defines us is what we decide to believe about Jesus. What you decide to do with Jesus will define you, not just here and now, but eternally. We saddle Thomas 
with the shame of his worst moment. But his doubt ultimately led to the most important declaration of his life. Verse 28, Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. This is one of the first instances and most unambiguous instances in the Bible where the divinity of Jesus is declared outright. We see inferences of it, but Thomas just straight calls it as it is. My Lord and my God. Yes, you are my Messiah. You are the promised one to come. You are the king of my heart. You are the king of my life. And I will follow you wherever you lead. But you are not just my king. You are my God and I worship you. That moment's what defines Thomas. He's not doubting Thomas. That's not where he ended. Where did he end? With a declaration of belief. And he's the first of the disciples that makes it my Lord and my God. He is not doubting Thomas. But that's what we saddle him with. And I think that happens in our own lives. We all have moments of great success And we will all have moments of great struggle. We will all have life-making wins and heartbreaking losses. But those moments do not determine our eternal identity and destiny. What determines our eternal identity and destiny is only and always what we do with the resurrected Christ. What do we do with Jesus. As a community of faith, both here at First Baptist Seymour and around the world, we need to take care that we don't define others or ourselves based on their shame or their success. We need to see them through the lens of God's grace and love, and we need to love them as he loves us. Christ invites us to believe. Christ says to Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So the question must be asked this morning. What will you choose to believe about the resurrected Christ? What will you do with Jesus the twin spirits of doubt and devotion will continue to tug at our hearts. They will continue to mold and make us. May we be aware of their presence and make sure that they are driving us towards greater faith in Jesus and greater devotion to his calling for us. May we engage in his community of faith, in his body, the church, that we might lift one another up And carry one another forward in our moments of weakness. And celebrate one another in our moments of strength. But always, always, always pointing one another to Jesus. Our risen and living Lord and God of God. Father God, I thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives. I thank you for your suffering and our salvation. And I pray that you would work and move in our hearts this morning to convince us of the truth of who you are and the calling you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.
This time I'd like to invite the deacons to make their way to the front. This morning we have the privilege of partaking in communion together. And as we do, we're going to return to some semblance of what we've done pre-COVID. And we're going to serve you communion where you sit this morning. And as the deacons, part of why we're doing this is to give you a moment to, to think and to reflect and to consider what Christ has done for you. To understand the significance of the shed blood of Christ. To celebrate that together. Father God, I pray that you would bless these elements, this your body, and this your blood. Lord, I pray that as we celebrate communion this morning, that we would truly be your community of faith, transformed and changed through your shed blood, remade into your image, and empowered by the presence of your Holy Spirit within us. In Jesus' name. Amen.